0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Hey, I'm here with uh, John and Megan, and we have all decided to read a canticle for Leibowitz. And actually, John, you were the inspiration behind this. I guess you saw that a group in uh, at the University of uh chicago is that uh uh, loyola chicago they they have a uh, what is it a course on no so
2: what happened that was actually just um i don't know one of those odd things when everything comes together at once i had already read the book and i noticed that the university of chicago loyola was having a mini lecture or something with breakout groups discussion series on The book and and the Catholic imagination and that was just recently last week I believe but I read it I had um, got a couple friends from seminary and we had talked about it before I'd actually thought that I had the book and had read it in high school but I was confusing it with something else and so just got it and began reading not really knowing what I was getting myself into and realized that it had a lot of theological philosophical nuggets to work through
1: uh, as well as a great story. Yeah, no, it's the first novel that, uh, for some reason, I set a, aside novel reading for a while <laughs> in my life, but I, I found this one quite engaging. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a little bit of the uh, background? First of all, you know, I, uh, explain to us the title.
2: Yeah, so it's an interesting... Uh, the approach to the book is interesting because Leibowitz, who eventually becomes Saint Leibowitz in the book, is not a living character. So the book begins a few hundred years after a nuclear holocaust. And this all makes sense because uh, Walter Miller Jr., who writes the book, is writing in the nineteen, uh, I 1950s, 60s is when this uh, comes about. And so, you know, he's living in a world that is worried about... Uh, nuclear Armageddon. So he just imagines that that's already happened. But you have these monks that are living out in the desert around where Phoenix had been uh, in Arizona, and they're living in a world that has been completely destroyed. The radiation and fallout has afflicted people um, heavily. You're at a stage maybe even before city, emergent city-states, sort of like there are tribes and bands of people that fight with each other and people live in villages and here's this monastery that has preserved what they call the memorabilia. The memorabilia all has to do with what Liebowitz himself had set about to preserve. He survived this nuclear holocaust and kept a collection of human knowledge for some time when the world, when civilization, I guess would be a better way of saying it, when civilization would restart. But as the centuries have passed on, the monks who are um, in charge of keeping this memorabilia I have no idea what any of it is about. So it's like schematics for circuits, and you know it's depicting technology that is not in the world at this point. Uh, they also are preserving Christianity in a sense, though the book makes less of that. You know, so they are in order that uh, looks very Benedictine, and the way their days are ordered and the way they go about their business in this in this abbey it starts out with. A particular brother who is not yet pledged religious life—he's still in—he's in the novitiate, he, you know—and so he is out in the desert, and he's doing this Lenten fast that is uh, quite cruel. And he stumbles across this bunker underground, uh, spurred on by a wanderer, and he finds uh, documents that are. Uh, That supposedly belonged to Leibowitz himself before the the nuclear holocaust. So, in Leibowitz's prior life as a some kind of nuclear or electrical engineer. And a lot is made of this. It's funny, the order is unfor sure what to do about it because they're trying to get Leibowitz canonized as a saint, and they're afraid that if too much comes to light, the church will be suspicious that it's all a forgery. So, uh, the abbot. Dom Arcos is quite worried about uh, this discovery and word getting out and how they ought to handle it. So poor brother Francis Gerard is not treated very well. He eventually becomes a full brother as a part of the order. You're left, though, with him taking these documents to the holy city, which is the new Rome at this point is in Denver and he doesn't make it back you know so he meets the pope has this wonderful audience lebowitz is canonized it's a wonderful event but he's killed on the way back by uh, these people who are called the pope's children the deformed from the radioactive fallout and the story progresses and that's where you're left with that scene and then you jump about 600 years and you see emergent civilization city states the monasteries involved again Uh, We'll get into this more, I guess, with characters. When we talk about the characters, they're beginning to understand some of the technology. The book delves into issues of what does it mean to understand? Um, Is it enough just to have intelligent understanding or should we have responsible understanding? What what part does responsibility play and what we know and what we put forward? And um, then the book, again, jumps forward about 600 years to a technologically advanced age where there's space travel and space colonies. And once again, there are nuclear capabilities. And wouldn't you know, a nuclear war breaks out and we're left with the world being destroyed uh, once again. So that's sort of the book briefly.
1: We We might point out in the beginning the state of literacy, that is that these monks seem to be some of the only people that, you know, other than really uh, outstanding intellectuals that can read at all. I think in the beginning of the novel, who is the character that is kind of the scientist character that comes in business? So that's in the middle part. Oh, I'm jumping too far ahead okay
2: well, well no it's a good distinction because uh so in the first part you're right the state of literacy is just atrocious really only the church is literate people within the church and even then you know not even every uh monk or uh, person in religious life or, is literate and then you jump forward 600 years and you have the academy beginning to redevelop and so literacy is more widespread but again, it's at the level of city-states, you know, so there's lots of illiterate folks. And then it's in the last bit where uh, something akin to what we're living through uh, today, though, of course, we don't quite have space colonies or the, the mode of space travel that Walter Miller was imagining was possible.
1: And, uh, and I wonder how much that is reflective. You know, that that, uh, that is sort of true of history, that there was a time in which being literate was a kind of feminine, beside-the-point ability, that if you're a a knight or a soldier or You know, that men don't need literacy. They need their, their people of action. It seems like that literacy and the church are enfolded. Now, whether it's for good or evil, of course, that's the kind of the question throughout the novel because, in a sense, the preservation of culture also entails the destruction of culture. There is a kind, you know, if you think of a, a kind of a B.C., A.D. kind of understanding, that as long as the world is made up of little roving tribes and little, you know, the, in the novel the the kingdoms become Texarkana and, you know, that there's really no uh, surviving Uh, infrastructure or government. There's just these little tribal groups. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like in the period of illiteracy and kind of tribalism, there is a kind of preservation of life at the expense of culture. And then with the recovery of culture, there is then the possibility for annihilation of all civilization. And that seems to be the the play that is working itself out in the novel that is true to history with the unleashing, you know, Christianity for, I think, contains within it that which is the very best, you know, that there is a kind of uh, cultural transformation surrounding Christ, but contained within it, there is the possibility to change up the world, which sounds good until you get characters like Napoleon, Hitler, you know, the ver- the various fascists, marxism, uh it, it is, i think, a directly christian inspired understanding that you can literally put your hands on the levers of power and change up the world and obliterate it, obliterate one world, you know, the very worst, the the greatest evil and the greatest good the perversion of that greatest good seem to be unleashed and preserved inevitably and are tied together
2: yeah so a couple things one obviously it's the texas side of Texarkana that rises again and uh uh two, <laughs> Makes sense i uh, yeah, yeah um i thought of that in terms of i th- when i re- what you're describing is definitely going on in the novel and I thought of it almost as Walter Miller's meditation on original sin. Mm. So, that as human culture, you know, if we use culture like in scare quotes or something, as culture is preserved or civil- civilization is preserved, so too is uh, original sin preserved, which of course, you know, as a Roman Catholic, he probably would have thought of original sin in genetic terms. You know, that's an interesting question even with what the book is dealing with, in the sense of it's dealing with types of evolution. It's dealing with what happens to people who are radioactively altered, you know? So it's like the human genome gets altered into severe degrees where people are talking about other human beings as monsters. Though towards the end of the book, you've got sort of a different view about what might be going on there with this alteration of humanity. Oddly enough, they're called the Pope's children. So if nobody else could love them, the Pope will take care of them, you know, sort of thing. Uh, which is just, it's an interesting meditation on, uh, I think what you're describing, Paul, is rightly is like these two things, this privation of this good because of what humans will do with it. I think the middle part of the book explores that deeply in terms of responsibility. This is with the academic philosopher, you know, scientist that comes out. He's got a lot of intelligence. He's able to put things together and see patterns in these relics uh, of you know, circuit diagrams and everything. Uh, although he hadn't quite made the practical leap of how do you actually build some of this stuff? And it's one of the monks that does that. But then the question becomes, is this responsible? Uh, should we be doing this? And in that sense, I think there is that latent understanding of evil as being a privation or a perversion rather than... Uh, a force in and of itself, so that it's like, well, uh, it's good in one sense. They even talk about this, like the memorabilia itself reflects a knowledge of knowledge. Uh, They can't understand what's on the page, but they understand that understanding uh, is to be had or that you could say something about human understanding based on keeping these artifacts. Uh, So I think that's all, that's pretty insightful. That's an insightful meditation that the
1: book arouses. The the character is it Faun is the Faun uh, Taddeo. He in a sense you know he's supposed to be the great genius, but he comes and of course the monks let him look at the memorabilia, but they themselves have already even though they they really don't understand what a great deal of it is, they're able to discern within the memorabilia levels of fact and fiction. Mm-hmm. And so that for, you know, the idea, oh, the memorabilia, you almost might think uh, are a kind of text of scripture, that someone who is as bright as the scientist, he, he gets into it and he says, oh, I, I discover here that there were a race of uh, great apes that, that at one time controlled the world. And of course, I think what we've stumbled into is the the planet yeah. of the apes. Yeah, science fiction. Yeah, the <laughs> science fiction, and he does not have the ability to discern fact from fiction. Yeah. Abstraction. That's right. Yeah, and it it is a kind of meditation. You know, it's all there in the monastery. It's all sacred in a sense, but the monks are able to sort out. Or, or to a degree they're able to sort out. You know, that's the question, that some of this knowledge, is it as valuable as other parts of the knowledge? Is it? Is it all sacred? So it is a kind of pointer to the way that we might treat Scripture. Do we look at Scripture as a uniform, flat, revelation in which the beginnings and the you know beginning of a uh, picture of god is kind of a tribal warrior god in which there is the genocide and you know the notion of carrying out violence and all of the worst cruelties of humanity are assigned to this god and then there are there are the ends of you know the new testament a very different understanding of who God is in Christ. And it's almost like in the novel we're given that, you know, among some, the reason that this knowledge seems to become dangerous is that there is a lack of critical understanding of how to sort it out. And, of course, that's precisely what we're dealing with in the obliteration of the world of of a kind of nuclear holocaust always threatening. I presume that that making what is not sacred, sacred, and failing to understand what is sacred gives rise to the sacredness of the nation state in the novel, you know, to the degree that it's a accurate or true understanding. You know, the one thing that survives in terms of a world structure is the Catholic Church. But then we have to ask the Holy Roman Empire, which attached itself to the Catholic Church, is that in fact the impetus behind the joining of a kind of warrior God to the Church that is going to give rise to this mutually assured destruction of one holy empire in the, the beginnings of the Crusades, the Thirty Years' War, the, the rise of warring Christian nation-states that's going to eventually give us a world pitted against itself in war and nu- potential nuclear war. And so the novel is, in a sense, depicting the church as the preserver of culture, is there an element in in which even the author walter miller has he gotten that right it's just a question i had about let's so you said a lot
2: (laughs) so (laughs) about 10 thoughts as you were talking first i want to get megan's take on something that i think will help because before we get to the latter conversation let's go back to the further the first conversation you brought up about interpretation Uh, One of the interesting things that happens, and I think Megan will have a key insight on this, is in the first part of the book, one of the monks gets to work, well, it's Brother Francis, who finds the Leibowitz documents. He gets to work in the library, and one of the things he does is basically takes the schematic uh, that is a blueprint, as far as it, it seems like it's what you're looking at, but he creates an illuminated document off of it, highest form of art that they have. And I wondered what Megan thought was going on there. And then, of course, when he's met on the road, he's taking this as a gift to the Pope. You know, some of these bandits that are the deformed Pope's children, they steal that from him, mistaking it for the actual relic itself. But I wondered, Megan, how you saw art and the role of art entering and at this point in the novel uh, in connection with interpretation and their understanding of what they're dealing with.
0: Like, it seems like Miller's book is a history 2.0. Like, because I read somewhere as I was reading up on the book that he kind of buys into this like cyclical idea of history that we're just kind of keep going around the same thing over and over again. If you think about the first period of the book being kind of equivalent with like maybe the dark ages, kind of the fall of the Roman Empire through to what we would call kind of the like medieval or Renaissance age. It was the Catholic Church that kind of held on to knowledge and kind of held on to not only just the ability to read and write, but they also used a lot of imagery to be able to communicate to people because people couldn't necessarily read and write but would still come to church they could look at stained glass or they could look at um, tapestries. They could look at icons. They could look at illuminated manuscripts. And the idea was to tell the story faithfully in images so that we, even if you couldn't read, you could still understand what the story was about, Um, which is one of the reasons why a lot of the artwork is still so powerful today is because it was so well done. It continues to be able to tell the story really well. So I thought it was kind of interesting that that same kind of logic Applied kind of in the book. I also thought it was interesting. Um, this is kind of going back to something Dr. Axton said about you know, the way he structured the book in time periods or whatever. It's interesting to me that he didn't take it into BC. The book recircles around, but you could say it starts in an AD kind of a period. It's like the birth and life of Christ, death of Christ. It's almost like it's put like an immediate stop on history. So everything would flow back through from that point, which I don't know if that was a point that he was making in the story, but I don't know. It was just kind of a thing that um, occurred to me as I was listening to it. Cause I listened to it on book on tape, oh, yeah. which was hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Especially when the wanderer shows up, the guy who read the book gave the wanderer a distinctive Texas accent. And that made it super <laughs> funny.
2: <laughs> yeah. We should talk about that too. So that's interesting. Because I thought with the illuminated manuscript, something interesting about that whole episode in the book is of course that brother Francis doesn't know what it means. Yeah. But by illuminating the manuscripts, he's communicating some meaning, but not the meaning of whatever's on that blueprint. Right. That's yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's the technology actually that destroyed the world and now he's illuminated it in such a way that what does it mean now? Well, it means, uh, we're preserving something, uh, in a stance of hope or something it's an interesting thing that got yeah. tied up which i think comes back to what paul was getting at and uh, one of the points you need know, to start talking about scripture and uh, then the next stage of the book you've got this philosopher that i think they call him a philosopher he's a scientist but that's interesting that you would they would connect uh you know in this age philosophers are natural scientists of a sort
0: you know yeah uh, which is actually really similar to back in the renaissance age because well, um philosophers affairs then. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I also think it's if you remember that Miller was writing the book in I think it was like 1953 was when the first of the short stories was written somewhere around then he's caught up in that post war meditation on the cult of progress because yeah, yeah, yeah. from like basically the renaissance until 1945 1946 when they dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki we had this belief that we're getting better we're always getting better we learn more we have more technology we have more knowledge our science is better um and we need less and less of those like mystical things that we couldn't figure out before like we can solve yeah. it for ourselves and then it's kind of with world war one but it's like the definitive chapter gets written with world war ii between just the you know atrocities that happen in europe and then the stuff that we do ourselves to try to end the war all of a sudden we can't necessarily say that we're making progress because it seems like we've made a massive regress. And then as you enter kind of the Cold War period, people are sitting there going, we could literally blow everyone off the face of the earth just because people got their panties in a twist. Mm -hmm. And so are we really any better than we were in the dark ages? Maybe not. And so that kind of starts that whole existential, that would be again, philosophers and artists are usually the first ones to kind of see that. And so I think it's interesting that Miller's kind of already picked up on the cult of progress and kind of the lie that's inherent in it. But that of course the, the
2: on he embodies this. He embodies the problem of progress. He doesn't actually understand. He doesn't understand how understanding is a process that includes responsibility. Yeah. Uh, so that he just assumes uh you know that things will continue to get better. And so I wanted to come back to Paul's comment with this, because I think it brings up an interesting conversation about reading and uh, interpretation. And you were alluding to it, I thought, Paul, it's like, well, a fundamentalist reading of things, this flat reading of things, takes meaning to mean something historical only. So it's either you have a, it's either historical or it's a lie. Uh, And that seems to be the Thawne's perspective. And so he really doesn't know what to do when he arrives at the abbey and hears a monk who he already has the assumption that all these monks are sort of, you know, just dumb religious people, superstitious. You know, he's, he reminds me of a Hegelian in this sense. It's like, oh, well, philosophy's coming. These silly religious types have served their purpose, you know, um, but we've moved on. And he gets there and instead he finds that one of these monks has actually built a generator. Uh, that's comically powered by other monks running you know on like a treadmill <laughs> you know it can light up and a crude light bulb it's not even a light bulb in our and what we take to be a light bulb you know it's just it's made out of like carbon right carbon isotopes that lights up and uh, he's astounded but it's funny this is my favorite scene or one of my favorite scenes in the book they remove the crucifix off the wall to hang the light so that this uh thon patio can sit and study the memorabilia by this artificial light uh and you know he's got all these ideas he converses about the way he sees the future uh what how he thinks things should go and he's an agent of the state like he's uh you know he's the brother or stepbrother or something of hannigan this ruler uh cousin maybe i can't remember the ruler who's going to create a schism in the church and try to restart the age of empire and so this knowledge, you know, the, the abbot's wise in the sense that he sees where, how the memorabilia might be used. If, oh, he's going to understand it, but you're going to put it in the service of empire from the get go. See, this is a very bad thing. This is a, a negative thing. And so at the end, you know, they have these conversations about, well, what about your conscience? What about responsibility? It's not, you know, we can't just have breakthrough after breakthrough. Aren't you responsible for what people do with the insights that you have? Are they in the service for love of humanity, or is it just uh, empire and sheer power? And it's telling because at the end of all of this, this part, the abbot doesn't even have to tell uh, its brother Cornhoer to do it. He just gets up. This is the brother that invented the generator in the first place. He takes the light down and puts the crucifix back up. What we're talking about is actually two ways of knowing or two ways of reading, imagining what it means to interpret or understand. Uh-huh. Um, one's fundamentalist violent, serves empire, one's focused on not just what can intelligence grasp but what can intelligence grasp how do we make you know responsible judgments and ask the question of well does this actually serve to love one another, does this serve in love of humanity, does this serve in love of God and the monks take their stand but then you know, the book shifts for 600 more years, and you see it, they, <laughs> whatever happened, the people didn't follow the way of the monks. Right. So, uh,
1: it, it is a true reflection, if you think back to the inauguration of the nuclear age, that you have some of the brightest people in the world gathered, you know, in El Magado, in uh, the white sands of New Mexico. They're the smartest people and the dumbest people because these are the guys that they know how to build a nuclear, they're going to build a nuclear weapon. And as soon as they do it, or even in the process of doing it, of course, what they're doing, they're going to turn this weapon over to a fairly simplistic man, a government, that reminds one of Hannigan, the technology that is going to be put at the disposal of the leader Hannigan, is sort of like the technology put at the disposal of Harry S. Truman, who, you know, you get something so good, uh, you can't resist using it. It doesn't occur to him, uh, apparently, not to drop a nuclear weapon on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, of course, that's what we're dealing with in the novel. And that's I, I think that's what the author is very much... Uh, aware of, that Miller coming out of World War II is very much aware of the the sense in which the world came to the brink of its own destruction and the inauguration of the nuclear age.
0: Um, as we're talking about the nuclear bombs and all of that, how in kind of humanity's rush to prove that it's progressing and getting better and knowing more and being able to have more, it also inevitably blows up some of the best things in life that actually made life kind of worth living mako fujimara has a book on silence called silence and beauty um it's a is it shizaku endo's book silence yeah yeah he wrote a book on both uh endo's book and then the movie that martin scorsese did and then kind of talking about arts and christianity but one of the things he talks about in the book is when they dropped the bomb on nagasaki what they probably didn't realize like the bomb pretty much detonates right over one of the oldest enclaves of Christians in Japan and just absolutely like levels to the ground what was kind of a sacred area for people that believed and he talks about the loss of culture then the loss of faith I guess he kind of like loops it more into like lament and talking about you know silence in the book but made me think you know in uh, Miller's book how you have kind of the same thing where humanity keeps trying to like get more, know more, but eventually what we think is progress for knowledge actually just becomes progress for power. Um, yeah. And it seems yeah. like humanity can't escape this need to have more so they can be more powerful regardless of the consequences and that in their rush to get power, all kinds of things get lost that we're actually going to make life good.
1: Yeah, that's the the great irony of World War Two. You know that the uh, Kakure Christians in Japan—that it was precisely around the area of Nagasaki and the Gotō Islands outside of Nagasaki. Even today, you can drive around those islands in a way that nowhere else in Japan you come into a little village and like almost like a European village, a church will be the the dominant architecture in the in the village. And so that literally these are the people among whom Christianity survived. And the center of this group became this chapel, this church in Nagasaki, when Christianity in the 1850s and 60s, that once again, they come out in the open, they actually come and it's this chapel in Nagasaki that There is a restoration through the Kakurei Christians of Christianity in Japan. And so it truly, you know, Nagasaki is truly the center of Christianity. And this particular church is where several things happened historically. And they built the chapel there was to commemorate the original martyrs under the Tokugawa regime in which Christianity begins to be persecuted. The great irony is that it's right over this chapel, you know, because of cloud cover, uh, you know, several things come together, but here the Christian nation of the United States comes and they drop a nuclear bomb over the largest architectural Christian structure in all of East Asia that marked the beginning of martyrdom under the Tokugawa's in which crucifixion was reenacted by the Japanese uh, in in order to stamp out Christianity. And so you have the Christian nation destroying the remnant of Christianity in Japan through nuclear Holocaust.
0: Which not to sound heavy handed, but couldn't we say then that christianity when it's armed with empire instead of the gospel always blows up other more orthodox forms of christianity because in the end if you're working with empire you can't help but suddenly become power hungry and kind of one-sided i should say towards your position or whatever you're trying to accomplish and you forget first of all the gospel is about peace it's not about power because i was just thinking too um about how Walter Miller was part of the Battle of Monte Cassino, which the Allied position goofed and thought the Germans were one place and they weren't, and so they blew the crap out of uh, the oldest Benedictine monastery, great it's, treasures of the church, the oldest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's the first. It, like it's a super super sad story because they they blow it like basically down to its foundations, and then find out the Germans are actually behind a slightly different hill. And so when the troops rush in, they get shot up and it becomes a whole nother thing. I think the Allied position ends up winning that battle, but it's like a huge personal cost. And it's actually when, um, if you've seen the movie, The Monuments Men, the movie doesn't really go into it very much, but that particular battle was one of the reasons why the Monuments Men were brought in is because they made the pitch that even if we beat Hitler and we stop his advance and we take back all of Europe from him, if everything that made us a culture is destroyed then we've not really won anything and so it became their job to try to go into places and save artifacts um, whether it was art or they would help save stained glass um, they would help um, try to preserve and look out for historical landmarks that should not be bombed or attacked or blown up or whatever um, and then they also become really instrumental in finding all of the artwork that Hitler stole and trying to save stuff from the Nazis because the Nazis kind of had a slash and burn technique towards the end where they would just burn stuff rather than give it back. And so they saved some of the most like precious pieces of art in western civilization. But it's kind of a similar thing like we get so caught up in the narrative of oh, well, we're this wonderful Christian nation, we're the heroes and we're going to go save everybody from fascism, but that in the process sometimes we destroy the things that are actually maybe more important because we're not really thinking about what we're doing.
2: To your point about the, uh, that's, uh, you're talking about Nagasaki is where the Christian, that was the most Christian city in Japan, right? Yeah, it was the
1: most Christian city, uh, that that chapel, that church was the largest Christian structure, as I understand it, in all of East Asia. Yeah, I would just say, you know, that's because uh, the United States is the
2: worst ever. I think it is a question about understanding in the sense, and, and you know, Miller is interesting that he's playing this out in this novel, that full human understanding is not complete unless you're asking these kinds of questions beyond just, have I figured something out? You haven't really understood something unless you figured, unless you have figured into that understanding what does this mean in terms of my love for humanity and God? Because this is just a theological level. You start asking, like, what's a theological anthropology? What is a human being? We're created for God and each other. Uh, we have not actually understood any truth. We haven't understood anything to be true, if in some way it's not also a part of this most true picture, the, you know, the, the true way uh, of what it means for us to be fully human. In the image and likeness of Christ, which is to be fully in service, you know, the fully embodied way of knowing in service to each other and God uh, in terms of love.
0: Even as we have responsibility towards each other, we also have responsibility towards what God's given us as stewards, you know, because when we talk about being made in the image of God and kind of that original mandate to Adam and Eve, um, if you read and understand it, He's asking them to steward creation in the way that he created creation, which is with a lot of love and care. Um, and his, you know, children that have kind of come out of a post-war, like I was born in 89. So I was born like five months before the uh, wall came down in Berlin. So I'm like, I'm not technically a child of the Cold War era, but my parents were. It was still a really big thing when I was a little child, you know, the Russians were still the bad guys in movies and, you know, all that kind of thing. But very rarely unless it was people that were kind of anti-war or whatever, do you see people saying, maybe we shouldn't drop nukes on people because we destroy the earth. You know, it's become more of a thing now, I think, in culture to talk about the ramifications of things like nuclear holocaust or things like that, that it's not just lives lost, it's also the destruction of the earth, which you kind of see in Miller's book. You have all these like major deserts and strange creatures now and all these kinds of things.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the only decent way of thinking about that is to not separate humans from what the earth is that we yeah. the earth you know we are creatures the universe we, it's all, this is all cre- we're creaturely we we stand in solidarity with what has been created
1: yeah let me ask you, uh, you guys, about a, a few of the characters. John, you asked us, and we never answered you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's okay. It was good. Dis- we've had a good discussion. Uh,
1: and and of course, my favorite character was it. The his name was Francis, the very first monk yeah. we're introduced yeah. to, and I get really attached to poor Francis. And then he dies, right? And then somebody shoots him in the head with an arrow, yeah. and of course, he's going to appear again. That his skeleton appears. Mm-hmm in the, one of the last scenes of the book. And so it, it is tied together. But there, there are several characters, you know, the the wanderer that appears to Francis. And then the Benjamin, is it, that lives up in the mountain, the Jewish kind of... Yeah, who uh, is... Uh, I mean,
2: is this the same person as the wanderer?
1: Yeah, run that down for me. What what? And he, in some way, is mistaken in the beginning of the book Francis never does it. Yeah. Yeah. But everybody else just assumes that Francis has encountered a miraculous manifestation of Leibowitz yeah, yeah. in Benjamin.
2: Yeah. So I, so personally, I think who this person is is identified in the last part of the book, and that he is in fact Lazarus, raised from the dead, never to die again which so why would miller do this what's going on it's the most one of the most bizarre and wonderful parts of the book i think that what is going on there is tied to another character mrs grails who at the end is one of these deformed people who has a um It's interesting how the book talks about it because it mentions, well, you know, some people say that she didn't have this growth, which is actually a human head, like an infant head, on her shoulder when she was younger. She considers this growth to be her child and names her Rachel and keeps pestering the monks to get Rachel baptized. (laughs) And towards the end of the book, all of a sudden, one of the monks sees Rachel smile. And then, you know, at the very end, Rachel is fully awake even while mrs grails is dead i think these two characters tie together because the theme there that unites them has to do with eternal life and the resurrection you have the the wanderer lazarus raised from the dead by christ but obviously not a part of the resurrection of all things and so he is a constant throughout the entire story and people just aren't for sure what to do with him. It's like, it's interesting, he, he's got more knowledge, in some sense, uh, seems to be more even biblically literate and philosophically literate than anyone else, uh, but they keep referring to him in the, the middle part as a Jewish man. So he's an old Jew that lives over there type of thing, and the abbot and him get along, but then they argue about theology. And uh, It's interesting the way Miller would do that, because in a sense, it's really the, the old jewish man who has it right you know he knows uh, he comes and checks out fontadio are you the one we're waiting for nope <laughs> you know and moves on and uh you, so he's a a part of this meditation on what is new life resurrection the second coming type of thing i think is all tied up in these characters and you don't really see him disappear until you have rachel this growth uh, come fully alive with these bright green eyes you know like uh, the green of creation and it's then that the old abbot tries to baptize her and she says no as if she doesn't need it and I think this ties back into what I was saying this whole book's about original sin in a way uh. and, and preternatural grace so it's like uh, as the ship is leaving the earth and the earth is being destroyed once more uh, you have this uh, new creature I mean, I don't know. You know, it's a symbol of a new creature, archetype of a new creature who does not need baptism. It's like, in some way, this whole mess has finally been overcome. You know, is this the this, the resurrection to eternal life, uh, the resurrection that even Lazarus was just looking for? It's sort of interplay. Uh, so those are I my like thoughts that. on all of. Uh, oh, that's that.
1: good. That's good. I like that. Yeah. I, I see. I needed you to tell me that. Yeah, because uh, there's clearly something happening with Rachel.
2: Yes. Yeah,
1: yeah that there is something that that uh, out of the uh, nuclear poison, a new life is evolving. And is evolving the right word? I don't know. It springs forth from her shoulder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting yeah.
0: because it becomes kind of a the whole book in a weird way becomes kind of a meditation on hope in the face of death. Cause it's the idea that even if we do the worst to ourselves, somehow we're going to come back from it. Like life will kind of continue, which if you think of like early cold war era, that would have been a huge motivation for people thinking about like, we're going to end the world. And at that time, I mean, even as now there's nowhere else to go. Like, If we blow up this planet, we can't go to another planet. And so you're kind of constantly trying to find hope in the face of death because it it wouldn't take much to blow literally every continent off this planet.
2: And in that sense, it's a meditation both on the church and the enduring, uh, the perseverance of the church and on the finitude of human life. And this comes back to what Paul was saying earlier. You're left wondering throughout the book, because, you know, the church is actually keeping two things. One, they're keeping the gospel, but that doesn't seem to be what they're all that concerned about. They just think, well, of course. Of course we do our <laughs> prayers. Of course we have priests and you know celebrate the Eucharist. Of course uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus. But the focus uh, in this little order and even the focus in the way this order interacts with uh, both the, the new Rome and Denver, but maybe more significantly, the way they interact with the world is that they're keeping this memorabilia Uh, You know, and of course, as Paul said rightly earlier, it's this this thing is good in a way, but really it just is what gets them destroyed. It's what got them destroyed in the first place. You're left, I think, with the question. I think this is what Miller intends. You know, if the church is to endure, what is it actually the keeper of? Is it just the keeper of human civilization? That's one way of thinking about the church's role. That's actually... uh, You know in a secular age some people will even argue that's why we should keep the church around that's the only reason you know it's a significant part of human civilization there's people who argue oh the only reason the bible's significant or you should use it for um, study and in a critical sense is just because it's a widely read book that's been widely read for centuries so it's a you know human artifact of sorts i think miller's book is sort of a judgment on that way of thinking because in the end, uh, what matters most, and this is this is my favorite part of the book, perhaps the most haunting part of the book, is the last uh, the last abbot, Jethros Zerchi or Zerki. He he encounters this woman and baby who have been exposed to radiation, and the scientists and the doctors are doing tests, and it's obvious that she they're going to die. You know, there's no hope for these two and so at this point you know euthanasia is an option and there's this group that comes and sets up a plant it's just sickening i mean i'm sure there's there's resonance really between this and the concentration camps of world war ii Uh, there's this camp that's set up and it's a facade because it's got a merry-go-round and all this nice stuff it looks like you're going to the carnival but of course what they're doing is euthanizing people who have no hope and the abbot takes it upon himself to keep this woman and her child from euthanizing themselves he says he knows they're going to die a horrible and painful death and he thinks that's a better alternative than euthanasia and a part of his reasoning and he just keeps on saying well no you you can't take a life you can't take the life of your daughter you can't take your life you just it's going to be awful but this is what's been given to you pray you know turn to prayer turn to god and that's sort of a haunting thing because Miller just puts it up in all of its goriness, you know, the end of life in a horrific way, but thinking that, you know, she should die well or they should die well rather than uh, just ending it in a form of, I don't know if we want to say euthanasia murder or not. That's, that's a, probably a more of a debatable topic, right? But anyway, that's what's going on. And that's what the abbot is so preoccupied with up until the point where he sees Rachel, this growth. But the inner conflict or the inner dialogue that he's going through right before he witnesses this account of new life is he's laying there smashed under the rubble of this chapel, uh, being exposed to radiation. He's in incredible amounts of pain, and he begins to pray, God, just let me live long enough to experience as much pain as that child and woman experienced before their death. Let oh. me feel their pain. And he becomes a Christ-like figure in this sense. You know, he's saying, uh, let me take it on. Let me suffer the, in the way that they have suffered. Uh, and it's then that he gets to look up and witness new life. And what does he try to do? He tries to baptize it into the old <laughs> and uh, the new life symbolized in Rachel recoils. It's like, okay. no, God is doing something much better uh, and bigger than you could comprehend. And so oh, oh. Maybe i mean, the book ends on a happy note <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. That's a great. Uh, I, I really like that that ending, and of course, the spaceship being launched off at that point, I suppose is uh, is connected. Then, uh, the, hey, is this the resurrection? Yeah, I,
2: <laughs> ascension. I don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: and they've made the, they've made plans for the preservation of the the, the, the priesthood and even mm-hmm. the, the, the church is going to be preserved in that but i think
2: I think the point you're left with is well does that actually even matter you know because right. they've they've taken you're right they they took apostolic succession with them basically mm-hmm. and the memorabilia and uh, so they've taken the gospel they've taken the church and they've taken human civilization but you're left with this picture of new life not needing baptism and I think the question you're left with do those three things even matter mm. in the end when God has accomplished all that God will accomplish? Mm. That's good. That's good.
0: And if they do matter, do they even matter in the way that we think that they matter?
2: Yeah. Yeah. You're left totally. Yeah. It's
0: an. Because un- I think a lot of times we think something is important, and it's not that it's not important. It's just our reasons for why we think it's important are wrong. And so, therefore, if our reasoning is wrong, our motivation and our action will be wrong. In trying to preserve whatever we think is important, yeah, which is basically a picture of what you've seen for the last
1: like four years. <laughs> yeah, the, the, it is a novel for our times because total power in the hands of stupid people <laughs> ends up blowing the world up. That's right. That's and right. and so the destruction of the world, you know, that's that's the kind of the, as dramatic and well, yeah, but it's actually just kind of stupidity. It's there's nothing nothing profound in that. it's just stupid people. it always reminds me again and again of Bonhoeffer's observation in Nazi Germany that the people he really feared of course was were the stupid people who could not discern the truth in ha- Adolf Hitler or Nazism. Of course that's the period that we're living mm-hmm. through that it, it's the good religious fanatics that are probably going to get us all killed that literally are willing to destroy to what end is apparently a holy war is such that there is no end in the destruction because you take upon yourself the power of judgment of God's judgment. You can create your own hell and hell of course is the annihilation that God would pronounce and the nation state or the, the idiot at the head of things imagines that he has this, this divine power. Of course, that's what we're faced with here, I think, in the picture of this cycle of renewal and destruction. In some way, the, the power of God perverted ends up being the most destructive power in the world. Well, you know, another way of saying that is, isn't
2: that what evil always is? <laughs>
0: right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's evil. That's, yeah. That is by definition right. what is evil. And instead of seeing, uh, you know, maybe you're right. Uh, Rachel is a kind of even almost, a, is she a, a Virgin Mary figure, a Christ-like figure in that here is new life. And of course, what we have in the, the cross of Christ is that instead of a warrior God, we have a god who, in fact, is killed by those with this concept of a warrior god, and he dies precisely to expose and defeat
0: mm-hmm.
1: that violent depiction of deity.
2: No, that's right. I think it- uh, I hope I'm not just making this up because I've had several conversations <laughs> about this book but uh, uh, I think it's in the text itself that Mrs. Grails, who is the old lady that has Rachel growing out of her shoulder refers to Rachel as her own immaculate conception and so uh, I think the idea there would be uh, that it's not that Rachel is necessarily Christ but this is the new humanity caste in the, the resurrection the coming of Christ this is the, the fullness of humanity in Christ uh, is this picture at the end uh, is what we're left with and the only way that recognition dawns uh, on anybody the only person that witnesses it of course is the abbot and it dawns on him after he takes the place or begins to see the world through Christ is uh, kind of the way I would interpret that
0: Mm-hmm. it's interesting then that you find this new humanity in the midst of rubble in the midst of the ending of the world death yeah they're not new life on comes the, in death yeah yeah they're not on the yeah. ship necessarily yeah. that's heading out to a new planet to try to preserve life right. they're down in the worst possible place like they're basically in hell with the people that are dying which i would say that is kind of the purpose of christianity is to be yeah you know, so, yeah, it's, it's a so
2: symbol weird. of Christ has overcome death for sure, absolutely.
1: Yeah, and that may be the the true perspective of the novel that it's a, in a way, it's a very dark
2: yeah.
1: look. I mean, it is well, like dystopic, it. <laughs> uh, and yet I think, rightly understood, you know, Christianity, rightly understood, has to see the full darkness and destruction and just stupidity mm-hmm. that we're surrounded by and what is the alternative is this little tiny light you know in the, the novel the little monastery and that's the right. few monks and maybe that's the position that we're in it is kind of a, a hopeless dystopian future that we face outside of oh but there are these little sparks of light that uh, that do carry the possibility of hope. Maybe I said that too weakly, but no,
2: I think you're saying hope. Christian hope is not optimistic hope.
1: No. So
2: you know, this is always the mistake they like the uh, new atheist types make. It's like, oh, if we can just bring up evil, then everybody will see how silly Christianity is. It's like, no, Christianity's already taken full account of evil at a greater depth. Uh, then you have even begun to consider, you know, this is this is your favorite, favorite, uh, bugger bear, Paul. It's Anselm who says, Oh, you have not yet begun to consider sin. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you even kind of see it like, you know, as you're describing kind of the end of the book with that last, um, abbot, how Christian hope accounts for pain and suffering and says, That's right, it's better to engage the truth of pain and suffering than accept the lie and try to check out early
2: my favorite line in the whole book he's talking to that uh doctor kind of guy and he's like well you know the abbot says what do you think evil is and the doctor's response is suffering pain and the abbot says when did that heresy creep back into the world it's like if that's the extent of what you can identify as evil uh, is your pain like man, right we're in a bad place and i think that's where we are today i mean if you think about how do people mark being born and dying in our world uh you're you're born with um, baby showers let's participate fully in the religion of capitalist material <laughs> um, huge hospital bills and parents well, the baby books and then when you even die the- Go ahead. even
0: the whole process of being born at the hospital so my mom is a labor and delivery nurse mm-hmm. was she's now kind of going back to school so she's practicing as a doula and she's going back to school to get her master's so she can be a midwife because okay. in the state of missouri you have to have a master's degree to practice as a midwife it's like um, for some reason, and actually. i know it's it's a weird it's a state by state thing but apparently in missouri she's delivered or helped deliver i should say she's been a doula for five or six babies in the past year mm-hmm. and one of the conversations that she has a lot with moms is about not being afraid of the pain because mm-hmm. so much of the hospital the whole experience is to mitigate pain and here we're going to give you these medications we're going to give you the epidural you know what let's just schedule a c-section and get it over with and there's not really any consideration taken into the kind of trauma that has on the mom or on the baby Because there are definitely instances, like my sister, um, she just had a baby this last year and she was in labor for 60 hours because the baby got stuck and she just kept trying to do it and they tried everything they could think of to get the baby. Her head was rolled to Mm -hmm. the side and wouldn't go down and they ended up having to do a c-section after this like gargantuan amount of labor. And I mean, baby was fine. It was my sister. Honestly, she was just so exhausted and they were concerned about her. And so there are instances like that where like, yeah, absolutely. You've done everything you can, or it's not medically safe. But then I also know of a lot of women that they just put it on the books because their doctor's going to be on vacation the week they're supposed to deliver Mm. and they don't want to do it without them. So, you know, let's just do it when it's convenient for us and make Mm. it as least painful as possible. Kind of a similar thing, you know, for end of life where, People try to make you as comfortable as possible make it as simple as possible make it as in like you know not inconvenient mm-hmm. as possible and i'm not sure that that's really the point
2: yeah and so we'll look at dying same thing it's like um basically so i always think about the prayer book the great litany used to say uh, well still does say just nobody prays it anymore um <laughs> from a quick and sudden death good lord deliver us And if you ask people now, how do you want to die? Oh, I want to die in my sleep. Basically, they're saying, well, I want to die in such a way that I don't know I'm dying while I'm dying. And even just 80, 100 years ago, people would have said, no, I mean, heck, I got to get ready. I've got to be ready. I want my family around me. I want to say goodbyes. I want, uh, it's a long drawn out, dying was a long drawn out process. But now, if you get real sick, you you can go into hospice care and you can say, you know, shoot me up with so much morphine that I don't know where I'm at yeah uh, they'll put you to sleep basically i mean i don't know i'm not a doctor so i don't know how many steps away from euthanasia it is but it seems pretty close from just the you know right. ignorant onlooker such as myself And it's like we we don't know how to die well we don't know how to be born well do we really Which understand means we what, don't
0: know how to live well yeah
2: do we know what life is about sort of thing uh and i think this book is a really great way to wrestle through some of those issues yeah that's good,
1: that's good yeah I, and that somebody who works in hospice recognizes, oh they're euthanizing people, yeah, uh, with the morphine, and of course, for the in in my life, and you've all have probably experienced one side of this that at the moment of birth, you know that process in Japan, it was all natural birth- not because you sought that out, that's just the way they do it they yeah. have the lowest infant mortality rates in the world, precisely because they do not presume that killing the pain is the goal. There are very few cesarean births. The clinic that our latter two children were born in, the doctor said, I've never lost a baby. Mm -hmm. Think of that. Think of that. He's given
0: birth
1: hundreds of babies. And then of course, so that's one of the most, that's the memorable time. And then the time that I spent, you know, at the deathbed of my parents, of others, that it is a time when in some way that is you're reflecting in a way that you never do otherwise, or or in a sense it all comes home. There is the family, you know, gathered around my mother as she was Mm -hmm. dying. And so that there there is a sense that this is the point of meaning, Mm -hmm. Uh, this is the point of family and community congealing and coming together, and that's what we're losing. That's what's as you're saying, John. That's what's that's what's lost. Hey, it's been a great conversation. Glad we could do it, John. Thank you for suggesting.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It was a good first book to start the year off with. Yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) No, i'm sort of
2: like you paul i haven't i don't read novels very often so it was good to sneak one in
1: yeah I, i'm low brow in my novel reading i I, <laughs> I you know read cowboy novels and when larry mcmurtry stopped writing oh i just stopped reading
2: <laughs> well you know there's nothing that's that's right
0: This is kind of almost a cowboy novel in the sense it's all set, like, in the American Southwest. That that,
1: Yeah, it's it's a cowboy
0: novel with monks. All
2: right. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.